0: I feel as though I should offer a word of explanation about the last two episodes that may have seemed slightly odd. First all the references to the 1798 Irish Rebellion and then a lot of talk about Russian dolls. And I think that as is often the case and has on a number of occasions been the case in this long series sometimes I find myself saying things trusting my non-conscious brain to be saying them for some good reason, but at the time not entirely sure why and not entirely sure therefore where they are going. But I think that the point that I was trying to get at, I'm sorry if it was a little obscure, was that in the 1798 rebellion you had the end of a century during which a majority of the Irish population, largely the Catholics, although the relationship between Protestants and Catholics and politics in the 18th century is immensely complicated, as Melvin Bragg's programme made all too clear, but largely speaking, 80% of the population was downtrodden very often treated comparatively badly by the wealthier land-owning Protestant minority. And yet they didn't do anything about it, not at least until the Irish Rebellion of 1798, which didn't last very long, bloody and brutal as it was. So we find ourselves looking at a society That is manifestly unjust at least from our point of view and this is the point that i'm coming to but which at the time somehow remained relatively stable for a hundred years how is that possible well the first thing to emphasize is the from our point of view it's very easy for us who live in a much bigger russian doll with the great benefit of 2020 hindsight, to look back at that time and think, why on earth did they put up with it? Why didn't the majority rise up against the minority? And indeed, throughout human history, why didn't the majority rise up against the minority? Because minorities have almost always been in power, very often self-interested, cruel, unjust power and so for example when we look at that and we say but why did they put up with it we're tempted to retroject our worldview into their minds and the point that I'm trying to make I confess not perhaps very cog- cogently is that, from their point of view, our point of view was inaccessible. From their point of view, the world in which they lived may well have looked like the world as, so to speak, God wanted it to be. That was certainly a very substantial part of the collusive relationship between national churches and even Catholic churches and the state. And always has been. So the Church of England, which owes its foundation to Henry VIII, has always, to some extent, backed up, reinforced the power of the state and encouraged people to live quietly, soberly, morally, loyally, as if that were the demand of God, the requirement of God so underwriting the power of the state and the power until relatively recently of the monarch in such a way as to preserve social cohesion and to persuade those who were at the receiving end of the disadvantages of those organizations to behave themselves. In other words, From the perspective of those who lived in those times this probably didn't look as absurd as it does to us even if it looked as unjust or felt as unjust they may well it's difficult to believe that they didn't feel that they were downtrodden discriminated against But that's been true of every minority that has been discriminated against they knew about it but a mixture of and it is a mixture of the costs of rebellion which are of course massive and potentially threatening to take lives and the sense that you need to be pretty clear that the that where you're going offers significant advantages. In other words, that even if you have a rebellion, even if you have a revolution, what you will replace things with will be better. And a lot of people are often, I think, justifiably skeptical about whether that will be true. And time and again, when there have been revolutions and civil wars that have been successful, it has proved to be the case that what replaced one kind of tyranny was just another kind of tyranny, albeit with different tyrants. So for the working people, for the ordinary people, things didn't change much. Now the point about the Russian dolls in relation to this is that from the perspective of the Irish in the 18th century and the, particularly those who out, acquiesced in the unjust system that was in force. After all, they were used to being in an unjust system. They hadn't emerged from some kind of paradisical state where everybody was wealthy and everybody was friendly and there were no worries. They'd always lived like that. So they weren't looking at something that had sharply deteriorated, just something that had never been very good. Now that's like being in a Russian doll and unable to access any of the dolls that are larger than you and that contain you. You may well draw some solace from looking at those that are smaller, that you are, so to speak, on top of and that you can contain, and most of us at some stage in our lives do indulge that sort of schadenfreude of looking at people who are worse off than us and feeling good about it. But it's very difficult, not just uh, in terms of courage but in terms of intellectual scope, to imagine a world that is bigger than the world in which you were brought up, the world in which you were educated, the world that taught you how to think and what to think. And all education systems because they're run, usually, think about it, by governments, or churches, or religions, religious institutions. All of them have, as part of their core purpose, to educate successive generations in the prevailing mores of a particular culture. They want the Russian doll to remain the biggest and best, They don't want people, young people especially, with energy and courage and vision, they don't want them to start thinking about a better world because a better world by definition is a world in which those who are currently running the show will probably not be running the show. That's why change is so slow to occur because everybody who owns the means of education, the means of employment, the means of justice, punishment, legality and ultimately either exile, prison or execution, they have the whip hand in preventing people from thinking outside, not the box, but the Russian doll. And it's very difficult to think outside your world, especially if the whole world in which you live has so structured, controlled, influenced and persuaded you that it is the best, that this is as good as it gets then you will be dissuaded, even from conceiving of the possibility, that there might be a better world, a bigger doll, and that it is within reach, if only enough people have the courage to reach for it, to grasp it, to demand that it come into existence and make it come into existence. So that, I think, is what I was trying to say inarticulately in those two episodes and it links straight in to the theme that I am slowly working my way towards about what is bullying really. What bullying is really is manipulating the environment of individuals, families, communities and entire populations in such a way so effectively using all the means at your disposal education, employment, finance and the law so to manipulate the circumstances surrounding that population that they acquiesce in whatever system you choose to impose upon them. That was true of the Irish in the 18th century, true of us now. So that we may point the finger at or look askance at or look sympathetically at the Russians and the Chinese, the French, the Germans, everybody but ourselves. But what we should be doing is looking at ourselves and asking how it is that the forces of bullies are making us acquiesce in whatever injustices we identify and we un- we can identify many we can identify many without really trying, but at the same time, we are persuaded somehow to put up with them, just as were the eighteenth century Irish minority, a majority in the Catholic population mostly. And therefore you come to a remarkable and I think disturbing conclusion. This series has been called Unmaking Sense. And the conclusion that I think you come to, whether or not you endorse any kind of conspiracy theory, because I may just have sounded as though some weird and wonderful Machiavellian figures were busy organising all of this, when I suspect that more of it than we might think is just due to serendipity, but there are also opportunists who will make use of serendipity when it suits them, when it comes their way. But what's happening is that the way we make sense of the world as a whole is one of the instruments of bullies, of the bullying that makes us acquiesce in the ways things are. And education has a part to play in that, our democratic political systems, our legal systems, our social systems all of it all of them have a part to play in that our religious systems too i'm not going to start now because this episode's already been long enough but if you stop and think about the implications of the christian idea of original sin that everybody is a sinner because of some hypothetical fictional action on the part of Adam and Eve, as absurd a story as you're ever likely to hear. If you think about the implications of that, of starting from the premise that people are sinful and need correction and therefore justify repression and punishment, because you're saving them from themselves etc. Just imagine how much damage that has done to human minds and bodies over the thousands of years that it's been in place. And then think about the system as a whole and what opportunities there are including kinds of thinking that we have been indulging in in this long series, to think our way out of it so that we are not told how to think, what to think, what to think about, what to think matters and what our values should be by people whose values are very often very different. Thank you for listening.